I got to set the big picture for you one last time. As the book opens in Ephesians, the first two to three chapters talk to us about how to become a Christ follower. One, it's by the grace of God. Yo, were it not for the grace of God, I would never have had the power to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For I was dead in my trespasses and in my sin when Christ came searching for me. And the Spirit of God, the day he found me as a nine-year-old boy, the Spirit of God opened my mind and heart to my condition and to the gospel and gave me the grace to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. That's how you become a Christ follower. And my friend, while the rest of this study is really written in the book of Ephesians, is really written to Christ followers, I would pause long enough to create a holy moment for you and plead with you, if you have never, ever accepted the grace of God and believe on His Son, do so this moment. You might want to breathe from your heart these thoughts, O oh God. I am not a sinner because I have sinned. I have sinned because I'm a sinner. Thank you for interrupting my life and giving me this opportunity, this moment, to accept the blood of Christ on Calvary's cross to cleanse me from all my sin. Thank you for giving me the grace to believe that. You remember the day you prayed that, beloved? You breathed that from your heart to God. What a joy, what a delight to then become a Christ follower. And my friend, if in that holy moment you breathe that prayer to God, please, please, let the person next to you know, or the one who invited you, or, or let me know after the service, or one of the leaders, we want to celebrate with you. The same thing God's done in our hearts that he just did for you. Now, having said that, when you become a Christ follower, the book of Ephesians goes on to say to you and me, there are qualities that the Spirit of God builds into your life that are absolutely indispensable to you as a Christ follower. They are proofs that you, they give evidence to the fact that you genuinely have become a Christ follower, and they are these. Unity. I don't do this thing alone. I don't follow Christ all by myself, and thank God He didn't leave me alone. He gave me you. Aren't you glad He gave you me? And me, you? Look to the person next to you and say, I'm glad I don't have to do this alone. Please encourage somebody beside you. Uh, the sheep, and I'm spending too much time here, but that's all right. You've got nothing to do but watch basketball this afternoon anyway. <laughs> God creates sheep. That's why we're called sheep. He creates them with unique qualities, one of which is they are gregarious. That is, they're a flock. They move together throughout the pasture lands. And whatever enemy they face, they face together. 
unless periodically one of them is a sheep that goes astray. But the great picture of the flock is we're together. And that's what he calls us to as followers of Christ. I worry about those people who say, I don't need the church. Or those people who don't say it, but function as if I can make it through this week without the church. I'm a little weary this morning. I think I'll just stay home. Something's wrong in a mindset that so easily makes that choice. We do this thing together, and i got to move on. We're loving people who are Christ followers love God, and that love for him causes them to love the brethren. And as the far from God watches love one another, the book goes on to really teach They then want what we have, and we become dynamic light to them who are in darkness, to those who are in darkness. We become dynamic light. Why? Because God's given us a love for each other. So you ought ought to be saying to each other, I value you and I love you big time. And then beyond that, he gives us wisdom. Wisdom that comes from his book, and that's what... The book of Ephesians is all about Christ followers developing these qualities in their lives. Now watch this. If you are developing and God is developing unity and love and light and wisdom in you, do you know what he's doing? He's bringing heaven to earth. Now listen very carefully. This is where this means war comes in. If he is bringing heaven to earth then the one who tried to destroy heaven is the enemy of those who are trying to bring heaven to earth. And who is that? He's known as the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, your adversary, and the deceiver who seeks to keep you from unity and love and light and wisdom. Why? Because he's trying to keep God from accomplishing his great purposes so that he can replace God. That's why this means war. When you're a Christ follower, when you become one, very few people add this to the gospel, but it's part of it. When you begin to follow Christ, you enter a battlefield. It is a war. It is a conflict between the evil one and you and all other Christ followers. And what we've been studying is this great idea that God gives us hope for winning over this evil one who's trying to stop us from being all that God wants us to be, who's trying to stop us from bringing heaven to earth. What hope does he give us? He offers to us gifts to receive, and they were all those pieces of armor that the Lord offers to us as a gift and we have the privilege of receiving and putting on and taking from above. That gives us hope and victory. Now, you're still with me? Okay. Church, we now come, if you're a musician, you know what this means. I'm such a gifted musician, I know it. Now we come to the crescendo of not only this passage, but the entire book. 
People tell us that the book of Ephesians is about the church. Well, it is. They tell us it's about putting off the old and putting on the new, and it is. They tell us it's about the armor, and it is. But I want to suggest to you in this great crescendo of the book, let me put it another way. If you've been following the allegory of the battle that we're in, this is the climax of the battle. It is where everything is won or lost. The three verses I'm about to share with you. And what are those three verses? Oh, by the way, it's like a portrait that if you don't get this last brush that it, it paints the last stripe on the portrait. The portrait, you look at it, you can tell what it is, but without this last movement of the brush across it, the picture somehow is just not complete and you don't understand why. It's just missing something. And it's the same way in these three verses. If you and I don't get the crescendo, if we don't get that last stroke of the brush, if we don't understand this to be the final climactic battle, and we don't win at this, then we lose in every battle we try to win for the kingdom's sake. And what is this last brush stroke, this crescendo, this climactic conflict? It is prayer. Watch it. Praying always. Who in the world can do that? With all prayer and all supplication in the Spirit. That's where I live all the time. Mm -hmm. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance, perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Paul adds, and for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth with boldness, boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. What a crescendo. Unpackage it with me. The last three verses are actually the end or climax of this run-on sentence that began in verse number 14. And now we come to the end of it, and the first thing we're told to do is what, church? Pray. Here's the word. Pros you can. Say it with me. Pros you can. Pros you can. One more time. Pros you can. Why do I want you to remember that word? Because it means something that typically we have not been taught, my beloved, as, as evangelical followers of Christ and fundamentalists from ages past. What's the word pros you mean? It does mean to address God. But listen very carefully. It means to address God 
from a place suitable to address him. And here's what I've been taught as an evangelical fundamentalist over all these decades in my ministry. And I used to teach it. What comes to your mind when you think praying in the right place? You know what comes to many of our minds? The same thing that many have addressed with me when they said, Oh good, you're going to preach on prayer. Let's see if we can get more out Wednesday night in the yellow room. And I'm not decrying or diminishing that in any sense of the word whatsoever. Prayer together with God's people is critical. And I would suggest to you, if God moves your heart, that there are a group of men that pray at 8.30 before the morning service down in the end zone in one of those bathrooms, a group of ladies who pray together across from the nursery, a group of men who pray on Thursday morning at 8.30, and there are a whole group of people who come every Wednesday night to pray. And I would not want this church to function without that, would you? Prayer is critical. But that's not what Paul is talking about when he's full of the Spirit of God, saying if you intend to win in this battle, you've got to saturate all the armor and all the rest with prayer. You have to pray, address God from a suitable place. The suitable place is not at 8.30 on these front pews, front rows here, and seats with a group of men. He's not talking or even thinking about Wednesday night or Sunday morning. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about a suitable heart. Please hear this. In the Old and New Testament alike, God made it abundantly clear that if our hearts are not suitable, please know I'm not talking about perfection, nor is God. Who among us is perfect and therefore suitable to pray? No, no, it's a heart that is bent toward God that is suitable. And in the Old Testament, there were times when the people of God were not praying from a suitable place or heart. Remember the time when they said to the prophet, the ear of God is heavy and the hand of God is short. And what were they saying? They defined it themselves. He does not hear and he does not answer our prayers anymore. What's the matter with God? How dare we ever ask a question like that? The prophet of God responded when he said to them, It is not that the ear of God is heavy, he's not listening, and the hand of God is shortened, he's not answering what you ask for. What is it then if that's not it? It is that you have regarded iniquity in your hearts. What does that mean? It's not that there's a sinless heart that God's looking for. They had turned wholeheartedly to the pagan gods of their culture. Therefore, they were not in a suitable place to appeal to God. If you're with me, the New Testament apostles said the same thing to 
us men in the home. He said, guys, God doesn't hear your prayers. He put it this way. If things are right between you and your spouse, then God does not regard your prayer. Make it right between you and your spouse, lest your prayers be, here's the word, hindered. You're not in a suitable place to pray all day long when you leave the house in the morning angry with your spouse or your spouse angry with you, and you leave that undone. And when you go, I've watched couples over the years go through weeks, not days like that, and months, and you wonder why some marriages end, like one in our own family recently, after 40 years of marriage. Do you know why they end? It is because, my beloved, they let a day go by, a week go by, a month go by, a decade, a year go by, decades go by, and a lifetime go by without correcting their thinking and emotions and attitude toward their spouses. And then they wonder, why is the ear of God heavy and the hand of God shortened? And guys, if I understand my Bible right, that's on you. That's on me. We are the spiritual leaders of our home, and we must be those who humble ourselves in the presence of God and in the presence of our own spouses, our kids and our grandkids. If we don't, we are not in a suitable place to expect God to hear. So if you're with me, this whole prayer thing is something a whole lot different than Wednesday night prayer meeting. It's having a heart that at any moment can appeal to God. I've got to pick this up. The kind of prayer that is with all prayer. And another way of saying it, the text puts it, it is all prayer always. In other words, always praying. And I want to read to you a statement from John MacArthur about this. Praying all kinds of prayers always is public, private, verbal, silent, loud, soft, deliberate, planned, unplanned, spontaneous, requests, thanks, confession, humiliation, praise, standing, kneeling, lying down, lifting up your hands, putting your hands down, you name it. Eyes closed, eyes looking up, eyes looking out. We have this whole formula for prayer. It's like, don't do this, but it's like, will everybody bow your head? Close your eyes. It's time to pray. But that's not what he calls us to in this text. Have such a heart that you were always praying. That does not mean that you're constantly verbalizing something to God. It means that your heart is bent toward Him. It is not so much what you say as you address Him with your mouth. It is what your heart is crying out as you walk through the day that's far different. And I appeal to you. Learn this kind of prayer. 
That's how you pray always without ceasing. At work, God is my boss watching over me. At school, he is my teacher checking out my study habits. At home, he is, if you will, my spouse who is wanting an intimate relationship with me. And when I understand that, I can have one that's effective with my spouse and my children. Do you get this? It's a whole life lived with him in view. That's why you can say, pray always. Did David sin? Did he have a heart after God's own heart? Yeah, God said that after he sinned. What's he saying? I want you to be perfect so you're always in the attitude of prayer. No. Even in your sin, I want you to know what to do with it. Have a bent heart toward me. That's what God cries. And by the way, he's a loving father. He doesn't kick you out because your heart isn't always what it should be. He just wants to know, is that your trajectory? Is that where you're headed? A heart with your life bent toward me. Pray with all prayer and with all supplications. You know this word perhaps better as petitions. Prayers are a general heartbeat toward God. Supplications are specific things we're asking from God. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't learned to do this, learn, my beloved, to pray specifically. Years and years ago, Elaine babysat a young gal for another Christian family in our church. And this little girl, three years old, Elaine asked her if she wanted to pray. I don't even know if Elaine remembers this, but I was there at lunchtime when the little girl prayed. She said, thank you, Lord, for the white bread. Thank you for the lettuce. Thank you for the tomato. Thank you for the bologna. And thank you for the mayonnaise. I brought that up in some sermon I was preaching right after that. And I'll never forget an old crabby lady came up afterwards <laughs> And said to me, why on earth would you let a little girl be so frivolous in her prayer? She's talking to God. Oh. <laughs> what I wanted to say and what I said are two different things. What I said was, where do you think the mayonnaise came from? think God wants us to be specific in our praises and thanksgivings and petitions. My mother taught me a marvelous verse early in my life. It's Matthew 7, 7. I do not remember a time in my life when I didn't know the verse. It goes like this. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Let me paraphrase that verse for you, doing no injustice to it. Ask, 
for something specific. And the very thing you ask for, it shall be given you. If I have a bow in my hand, it does me no good if I ask for an arrow that I don't have while the bear is, is pressing down on me. It does me no good to say, anybody got a bullet? What good's a bullet going to do coming out of an arrow? I need the thing I ask for. Don't hand me a bullet. God knows there are times and moments in my life every day there are seasons of my life when I need my focus in prayer is on one specific need for that moment. God, give it or I die. God says in those moments, ask for it and it shall be given to you. Seek for that very thing you need and you will find the very thing you need. And knock on the door that needs to be opened. And the very door that you knock on, that's the door I will open for you. The problem is we've lost confidence in that promise. And it's time to get back. God, I'm going to ask for some specific things in our next servant leader. And those are not things that I desire, but things you clearly desire and I'm asking for them. Give us a man after your own heart. A humble man who walks with you. Pretty specific yo. Who is six foot two 35 years old with 50 years experience in ministry. No, no, no. Pray for the very specific things you know God wants and he gives them. Pray with all general prayers from a right heart. And pray in your praying with specific prayers that God is delighted in answering and giving. Why? If you ask him for a loaf of bread, will he give you a rock? If you need something specific, Will he give you something unimportant and unrelated? No, he's your father. And if earthly fathers love to give their children what they desire, how much more your heavenly father? Do you believe that? Be specific. And then this is the most important of all. If you don't get all the rest, make sure you get this one. Pray in the, say it, church. Please, together say it. Spirit. We learned that word last week, and you've known it, many of you, for a long time. Pneuma. Breath. Listen very carefully. That word pneuma or breath means the efficient source of power is the breath of God. The breath of God is the very source of your power. What is it that makes your prayers and mine so powerful? What is it? <laughs> it's only those prayers that are under the control of 
to the point that you are breathing out to God the very things that the Numa would ask for. That is the power in prayer. Now I gotta fly through the last. Here you go in machine gun rapid fire form. He does not only say pray, but he says persevere, and primarily he's saying persevere in your prayers, being watchful with all perseverance. And you gotta put this in your head. Paul's saying being watchful. Like as he described the pieces of armor. Who did he see on each side of him? He was in chains. He saw two fully armored soldiers. First century Roman soldiers. Soldiers of Caesar Nero by his side. And he described what they were wearing. And now he described in this thing called prayer what they were doing. What were these soldiers charged to do? They were charged to watch the prisoner with all perseverance, without slacking off for a single moment. Persevere in this watch, this prayerful watch that I'm calling you to, Paul is saying. Don't give up. How seriously did the soldiers of the first century take their job to watch over the prisoners real seriously do you not remember that time when there was an earthquake probably bigger than 5.1 like in California this week an earthquake that shook the chains off the prisoners and broke the bars off the doors and as the dust was settling the Roman soldier was about to fall on his sword. That's how seriously they took their job. If one prisoner, if I don't stay awake, if anything happens, whether in or out of my control, that causes these prisoners to be released, then I will pay for it with my life, and I'd rather die by my own sword than by the death that Rome will give me. You remember Paul, his companion said, do yourself no harm, we are all here. He took his job pretty seriously. Paul had that Roman mindset of a soldier in view when he says to you and to me, pray with all perseverance, watching. And watching for who? Watch this. For all the... Say it, church. Would you look at the person next to, next to you and say, got your back, man. Oh, please, do it. Got your back, man. Is that not what Paul calls us to do? To have each other's back by never, never, never letting down on this one thing, praying for all the saints, Hageos, those who are specially set apart for particular holy use. I wish I had time to park there. I just tell you, 
When God calls you to be a Christ follower, you respond to his grace. He is calling you to to an uncommon, holy, distinct, different, uncommon life. One that's not like the world. He knows there's one thing you need when you are set apart and made a saint and made holy. You need the prayer support of the soldiers that are sitting next to you today and all others that you can gather around you. You need their prayer support to watch for you lest you fall prey to the enemy. Pray for all the saints. Got to tell you, that grips me big time. One of these days, sooner rather than later, God's going to call, I don't know if you're aware of this, pastors into his presence who have shepherded the flock. He's going to ask how we've done at watching with perseverance over the flock. By the way, he's going to ask how the flock is done, too. That's not on me. That's on you. It's on me to be the kind of shepherd who watches the flock with perseverance and prayer. And I wonder how many on that day will lose reward because I failed to pray and watch with all perseverance for all the saints under my care. I wonder how many have failed because the saints have failed to pray for the saints. If you've learned anything as a church, have you not learned this? You must pray for your next servant leader, lest he fails. He puts his riches on just like you do. Pray with all prayer for all the saints. And this one just blows me out of the water. Paul says, and pray for me. This guy who walked the entire then-known world in his sandals one at a time leading thousands to Christ. And he says, pray for me that I may speak boldly? you got to be kidding me. If that man who has more spirituality in, all of his, in his little pinky than all the rest of us combined, if he needs prayer support, how much more do we? Do you feel that? That's pretty important stuff. Pray for me that I may speak boldly. All right, your turn. What's all that mean for us? Keeping it in its context, here's what it means. You can't bring a rifle to fight an enemy who has an atomic bomb. Is that profound or what? I made that up. Say, way to go, Larry. What's profound about that? If your enemy has one-third 
of the angels of heaven as his minions to bring them to bear on you in this battle. What hope do you have if you just intend to walk through a day? What hope do I have or we have collectively if we intend to walk through a day in our own strength without putting on consciously the armor that he has given us and without the prayer support that he has called us to for each other? How can I expect to win? The enemy's an atomic bomb. I'm just going to fight him with my rifles. No, pick up the armor of God and no atomic bomb from the enemy. Pick up this whole thing of prayer always for all the saints and for individuals and with supplications or specific petitions for all of us. Pick up those pieces of armor too and that final piece of armor, prayer. Pick it up or you're just bringing a squirt gun to fight somebody who's got an atomic bomb. But you pick up the armor and prayer, this kind of prayer, and there's no way in this world that the evil one wins. He loses because God is omnipotent, not the atomic bombs of Satan. God is superior to them all. And all who believe that said,